2: Today's guest is Federico Baradello. Federico is the founder and CEO of Finalis. Finalis is a venture-backed company building the largest private securities brokerage platform. Uh, Federico has extensive background in M and A as an attorney, and he's done countless uh, middle market deals. When he realized there was a problem in how antique the technology is that they use to facilitate these deals so federico started finalis and for the first few years they figured out what they wanted to build and about 2 years ago they launched a the product and things are going very very well so we talked about what they're building and how they launched the product how he met his co-founder uh, how they got the business off the ground and we talked about the market of Raising money and selling and buying, selling companies in middle markets. Uh, I learned a lot about the market, the landscape, and then what they hope to build in terms of a marketplace going forward. At the end, we talked a bit about GameStop and the psychological mechanics and regulatory considerations for uh, everyday consumers, retail investors, uh, which was very interesting. I very much enjoyed the conversation with Federico, and I hope you do as well. If you do, please like and share the show on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever you see it. Um, it very much helps us grow. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Federico Baradello. All right, Federico, we are live and I'm excited to chat with you. I, I love what you're working on. Um, why don't we kick the conversation off with you just telling me what it is, in your own words, that you're building. Uh, and and I'd love to hear kind of what you saw initially and why this means so much to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and thanks to you, Mike, um, and to the Around the Coin podcast for having me on. Uh, so I'm the founder and CEO of Finalis. Um, Finalis is the first of its kind category-creating fintech business that's delivering real innovation in the investment banking space. Uh, I'll share a little bit about my background. So, I like to call myself a recovering Kirkland and Ellis deal attorney. Um, spent a number of years at Kane's San Francisco office doing middle market technology company buyouts for private equity fund sponsors like Vista, Silver Lake, and many others. And I realized over the course of my career at the firm that a lot of my day to day was circling around a central irony, which was the fact that I was working on some of the hottest tech buyouts in the country. But the technology stack that I was leveraging on a daily basis to actually execute those deals was thirty years old. You know it was the combination of the office suite for trackers and checklists, literally thousands of process emails per transaction, uh, and clunky and old school virtual data room solutions. And that to me made no sense, you know, particularly in light of the fact that, there's now a whole new generation of digital first natives that are driving forward at least the workflow layers of these transactions. Mm. Uh, And so it culminated for me in an obsession around how digital transformation can be brought to bear uh, in this private capital markets realm. It's always been a bit of a mystery to me that uh, venture capital and risk capital has tended to chase relatively small innovation opportunities and relatively small asset classes uh, of the capital markets. The reality is is that there's trillions of dollars worth of transactions annually uh, that I would classify as being traditional transactions, whether they're mergers and acquisition type transactions or capital or debt raises. And the reality is is that the lion's share of those transactions are flowing through very web 1.0 type solutions. Uh, And so that is where uh, Finalis is very much focused on on delivering and driving digital transformation um, within what I would classify as the traditional capital markets.
2: Yeah, awesome. I, I love that story because I've heard that before. Where I have a bunch of friends who have worked in Wall Street or they work in SF, they complain about whatever technology and banking that they're using, and then it always seems like that's the that's it. They complain about it and then they just use it and that, and no one seems to do anything about it. What were the, obviously leaving your job and building this is a big hurdle. Building, (laughs) building the technology itself must've been a fairly daunting task, right? I mean, this is not your domain. How did you sort of checklist through these things? Did you know somebody that was a, became a co-founder that helped build out the tech stack or how, and how did you phase out of the, (laughs) the role too?
1: Yeah. The first thing I'll say is that I come from a family of entrepreneurs. And so I think I was kind of living and breathing this stuff growing up. I also live in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, you know, you can, uh, in downtown San Francisco in the financial district, I always felt like a bit of an oddball, you know, the lawyer amidst the, uh, the entrepreneurs. Uh, the reality is you could throw a stone in downtown San Francisco and hit a VC or a, or, or an entrepreneur, you know, working on something interesting. And so I was very much kind of in the mix. And so that clearly made um, this less less of a giant leap than it would be perhaps to, to a deal attorney working in Wall Street. Uh, I think, you know, the other thing that I would say is that, uh, you know, I had seen over the course of my career at the firm that, you know, it... It, it was just so ever-present and, and obvious to me that there were tremendous opportunities for digital transformation. And I knew it would take a long time to manifest this vision. You know, Finalis is a four-and-a-half-year-old company, but we've only been in market for about 20 months. And I mean, think about, you know, what were those early years devoted to? They weren't just about building the technology and getting the regulatory licenses ready. Uh, they were also about... Trying to identify the right go-to-market strategy. Um, because in this industry, you have lots of different stakeholders, right? Um, you know, the law firm, you know, as, as an attorney, I represented one stakeholder. But the reality is, is that, you know, even in the most simplified version of a private market transaction where you have one capital seeker interacting with a capital provider, you have a coterie of professional advisors sitting around each node each of whom is married to their own incentive structures, their own workflows. And that has very much driven a lowest common denominator approach to managing the transaction, which is what takes people into the fallback, right? Which is going to be the office suite and email every time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. It makes a lot of sense. So the key stakeholders are the law firm that facilitates the deal, the business which is going to have a legal representative typically in house but maybe not and then a legal rep on the buy side is that is that is that usually there's three major parties interacting buy well, sell and
1: There's also the investment bank critically um, and and there would be you know the c-suites within the c-suite within the corporate Uh, And then obviously the financial sponsor or the strategic uh, acquirer or investor.
2: Wait, help me understand this. So there's an, there's an acquirer and then how does the investment bank fit in? So the acquirer is, it's not a direct acquisition or is this a separate kinds of deals that are typically being done?
1: So typically in the lower middle market, you're interacting with an investment banker on, on one or both sides of the transaction. So there will be an investment banker that signs up an engagement letter with the CEO of a company that is looking to raise capital, raise debt, engage in uh, in an M&A process. And so that's typically what's going on on the sell side. But it's also the case that investment bankers will be engaged by a private equity fund uh, and, and other forms of financial sponsors uh, to go uh, or strategics to basically go and identify uh, interesting acquisition targets. So you okay. do have investment banks operating on both sides of the transaction.
2: And in that case, the model for the investment bank is to broker the deal. They're not actually putting in money in most cases.
1: Exactly. In this case, they're they're effectively brokering the transaction. Got it. So
2: who would be the who sets the the. Table when it comes to technology in the data room is it the is is it typically the acquiring
1: legal team? It's actually typically on the sell side. Um, the sell side is quite influential with respect to the technology stack and the process workflow that's followed throughout the course of the transaction. Mm. you know there, there's a saying in real estate that everybody works for the seller. Uh, that concept generally also exists in the investment banking M&A and private price placement realm, where at the end of the day, the seller effectively will set the tone for what that process workflow is going to look like, which is probably the main reason why finalis, when we were kind of cycling through different go to market strategies, we really landed on the need to drive digital transformation within the sell side bank first as a way to bring that digital transformation into the broader deal execution ecosystem. Right. What so the idea of that is that the mm-hmm. the engagement, the moment that engagement letter is signed between the sell side bank and their client, that represents you can think of it as like the moment of conception of a possible deal, right? And you want to be relevant uh, from day zero of that possible transaction. You don't know whether or not that transaction is going to close, but what you do know is that if you are able to deliver that relevancy as a tech solution from day zero of that transaction, you are likely to be able to carry that digital transformation into the rest of the process. So that's why we selected the sell-side investment bank as our target customer.
2: And they're typically paying for the service, right? Most data room services, as old as they are, were being paid for by the... When you say banker,
1: is that interchangeable with broker? Investment broker. I would I would call broker kind of a broad a broad category of of uh, the the types of of individuals that 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 will deliver value to, uh, but depending on the nature of the transaction, uh, you know certain consti- certain constituency of of business broker or brokers of private securities will call themselves investment bankers, and so investment bankers are clearly you know one of our target customer uh, bases.
2: Gotcha. And is it a straightforward pricing model where you charge a per month, or how does the pricing model work? Uh, yeah.
1: I think the yeah, no, g- great question. I think it might make sense to back up and to share a little bit about kind of what the finalis value proposition is, because it really took us a few years <laughs> to identify kind of what that what that killer uh, you know value proposition needed to be in order to. Successfully scale within the investment banking world. We are not just a software solution. Uh, We are also effectively a set of regulatory rails upon which the the broker can bolt themselves onto to scale their business. And so the value proposition is an affiliation with FINRA, which is the key regulator in the industry, operating under the auspices of the Securities and Exchange Commission. We deliver that regulatory affiliation on a white-labeled basis. So in doing so, you know we're effectively delivering a powered-by-Finalis experience, but we're really focused on promoting the brand equity of the individual investment banks that are leveraging our regulatory infrastructure in order to scale their business. In addition to that, we bolt on a technology-enabled compliance team. So you can think of this as effectively a fractional Chief Compliance Officer that delivers support uh, and is, man- is tasked with managing the regulatory profile of both the investment banker or the private securities broker, as well as ensuring that their deals throughout their life cycle remain compliant. Right, And so there's a variety of compliance requirements there uh, to make sure that that, that happens. There's KYC and anti money laundering checks that happen on both sides of the transaction. Uh, There's also um, uh, the requirement to ensure that marketing materials that are kind of making representations about a possible deal opportunity uh, are consistent with uh, FINRA's advertising standards, as well as other checks along the way. So that's a, a critical element of the value proposition. We then wrap that experience with software. And that software does include, as you mentioned earlier, virtual data room solution. Um, And the software is also effectively the predicate wedge that plays into everything that we expect to build next. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the big opportunity for Finalis is to really roll out uh, really exciting marketplace tooling uh, that is focused on de-risking the transaction for our bankers once, once that transaction or that mandate is won. And so we think that we can really uh, help to help to deliver origination, execution and distribution solutions for our banker, leveraging the self-serve software that we've built.
2: That's pretty interesting. Is there a quantitative identified cost internally to most organizations when they think about uh, regulatory either the price for making a mistake or the price to have a legal team in-house? Because it seems that you're emphasizing that, and I would imagine it's a pretty big deal, at least for the attorneys that are involved where they don't want to make a mistake. Is that kind of the pitch to them is, hey, use Finalis and make fewer mistakes and end up <laughs> you know, paying less in regulatory fees? Or is that or is there another, like when they think about that benefit, what are they thinking as a cost reduction or, or time-saving?
1: It's a great question because oftentimes the way we look at this internally is that Finalis is effectively uh, unbundling the desk fee model that has been followed for decades within bulge bracket banks like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. So for example, today, if you were a managing director at in an, in the investment banking division of, of a goldman sachs or j p morgan uh, you're effectively giving anywhere from 90 to 93% of your annual commission production to the house you know for the privilege of being a managing director uh, at a place like goldman sachs wow and when these bulge brackets are articulating the basis for receiving Ninety to ninety-three percent of the annual production. The justification is typically associated with back office support, which might explain about fifteen percent of of that hundred um, percent picture. Uh, and then you've got somewhere in the order of sixty percent plus, which is focused on things like deal origination, execution, and distribution support. Got and it. then like likely 10 or 20 percent that's focused on things like the um, the intangible value of the brand equity of being affiliated with with a large bank uh, right. of that nature. And, and so what we've done effectively is to turn the model on its head. You know, we're unbundling that desk fee model uh, and we're focused on making the broker, not the brokerage, the hero of our story. So the message that we're sending to the managing director at Goldman Sachs is, you know, it's not that hard to set up your own boutique bank. You can leave a place like Goldman, you can immediately sign up with a firm like Finalis and launch your own brand equity in the marketplace. And in doing so, take the lion's share of the commission for yourself. As it well should be, because they're the ones that are uh, effectively monetizing their brand equity. In the marketplace to to help get this deal closed. and have there been any? Well, I want to ask you, what was that expression you used, Bulge banks, bulge bracket banks. Bulge bracket. What does that refer to? It refers to the large, you know, the five to ten largest banks globally. affected.
2: yeah. And have they become sort of uh, like lopsidedly large in the in the market because of just consolidation of returns on their uh benefit i mean is it a natural market evolution that we've had this consolidation or have there been regulatory laws that have passed that somehow give them advantages over small bankers
1: i think what's interesting is that you know our customers our bankers are pursuing deal flow that wouldn't always be of interest to the bulge bracket banks. Mm. You know, the, the the Deutsche banks, the, the Goldman Sachs of the world uh, tend to enforce pretty high fee minimums uh, before even entertaining uh, the mm. possibility of working on a transaction uh, in their investment banking division. So, I think at Goldman today, it's sitting at around five, a $5 million fee minimum. What?
2: That's their fee yeah. that they would take?
1: That's their minimum fee that they would take on, on an M&A transaction. Uh, and and when we look at that, or many many of the bankers that are leveraging Finalist, they would be many of them would be thrilled with a one million dollar success fee. I mean, um, I, I, what is that? What does that come down to if you
2: factor in just averaging out? Uh, this is, yeah, I'm sure you you, well, you probably don't know this, but it, what would be the average total man hours on a deal? Say on Goldman side or Deutsche Bank? Are they putting in a thousand hours of? You know, I I know that there's varying levels of skills and billing rates between different people in the house, but like for, for a $5 million minimum fee, are they end up billing at some absolutely exorbitant hourly rate? If you were to factor that all in.
1: It's, it's not, they don't really see it as a per hour, um, it, you know, it's it's one one of one of the one of the great triumphs of investment banking is is charging on the basis of a of a percentage of the deal value. You know, when I was a deal attorney, um, you know, it, it was often rationalized as the reason why uh legal fees have escalated so quickly over the over the course of the last uh 10 years, especially in the MA space, um, was a function of, well, because attorneys cannot uh, charge on the basis of a percentage of deal value because it would be perceived as a conflict uh, of interests. They have, it, as they have looked at the funds flow when deals are closing, and they're looking at the relative invoicing between an investment bank, let's say, in a law firm. Uh, they realized that, well, if they believed that the value that they were delivering through the law firm was at par with the value that that the investment bank was delivering to to get the deal to a to a term sheet, then they needed to effectively ramp up their hourly rate uh, in order to more closely approximate the, the fees that were being garnered by the investment bank at close. So, it, you know, you, you typically don't uh, reflect or communicate the value that an investment bank uh, is delivering in helping to get the deal done on the basis of, of the actual man hours that are put in.
2: Billion dollars worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management, scams, and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo crypto wallet, is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has, just until now, only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, is the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com. Code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of
1: $200 or more. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations
0: with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, and more. The handler one day told her this whole thing about how they've been terraforming on Mars and they're building a colony and they're recruiting specific people of specific bloodlines and specific talents and skill sets to go onto the planet. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Yeah, either way, a five million dollar fee for a transaction is minimum fee is wild. I would imagine that they go up tremendously from there. But that means there's a ton of fat that you can go after where you're disintermediating or unbundling the consolidation of a Goldman or Deutsche Bank middle market, I imagine you're not targeting ultra large deals today, although that may be well within your roadmap. Uh, Is there a reason structurally this hasn't been done sooner? I mean, to be, you know, in 2020 when you launched or 2021, it it seems kind of late in the game. Uh, Is it just ultra complex and you kind of had to be an insider and there's golden handcuffs that prevented – lawyers or other people knowledgeable about this problem from really creating it. I mean, certainly no one's going to sit around that's not familiar with this problem and just brainstorm it on the couch and start building it. So are are those the factors? Are there other factors that have led to this becoming uh, a problem for so long?
1: Well, I think the first thing that I would say is that we're really effectively here at Finalis... targeting a trend that is a relatively recent trend. You know, really over the past 20 years, there's been a significant shift in capital flows from the public to the private markets. Um, I think private market assets have grown over 10 times over the last 20 some odd years and represent over $6 trillion globally. And that's been driven by a variety of factors, low interest rates, companies choosing to stay private longer, uh, the need for portfolio diversification and what have you. Um, but it's also been driven in part by the fact that regulators have now focused on expanding retail access to the public markets, making it easier for retail grade investors uh, to enter into the private markets uh, through things like expanded accredited uh, investor right. definitions, amendments to the ERISA law and, and what have you. And so it's created this explosion in volume in deal flow in the lower middle market. And lower middle market deal flow is heavily relationship-based, mm. where you might have a family-owned business that is looking to uh, to exit, right, and to be sold. Um, you know, one of the largest deals we had a couple of months ago was the sale of a family-owned pavement and concrete business mm. in Southern California. These are not deals that land on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> but in the aggregate. They represent more than three Goldman Sachs's worth of deal flow annually, and those deals are being serviced by the any anywhere from the the, the one uh, the 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 one man band uh, you know independent finder to you know a twenty or thirty person uh, boutique investment bank in Midtown Manhattan and everything in between. Mm. And that's become a significant growth area. Just to give you a sense. Uh, boutique investment banks accounted for about 10% of investment banking revenues in t- in the year 2000. Today, it's over
2: 40%. And wow. so
1: the growth the the growth is really significant. Uh, and we we here at Finalis see a tremendous opportunity, not just in making it easier for those existing uh, long tail bankers uh, to set up and to to grow themselves, but to attract a, a whole new generation. Of boutique uh, investment banks uh, onto the Finalis platform who are looking at this desk fee model and asking themselves if 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 that is a, a construct that they want to continue to operate in.
2: And the alternative for them, what they're currently doing, is kind of a hodgepodge of emails and uh, individual data rooms. Maybe it was some, I'm sure it's not Dropbox, maybe it is in some cases, but something similar to that specific for attorneys and transactions, um, when you think of the product, the technology, what are the key sort of categories? Do you have a communication portal, like a messaging center, a data room, certainly the reminders or the notification system for the uh, the regulatory guide rails, as you described it?
1: Yeah, I think one of the key insights that we had early on when we were rolling Finalis out was that compliance, unlike a deal, which may only be relevant 50 or 60 days out of the year, compliance is relevant 365 days out of the year. And so from a software Rails perspective, uh, you know, having that relevancy every single day of the year, as we monitor the regulatory profile of our investment bankers um, and, and make sure that you know they their licenses are remaining in good standing with the regulator. as we conduct email surveillance, outside brokerage account surveillance, and the like, that that forms a very strong kind of predicate basis for everything else that we want to build on top of that. Hmm. And so that's helps to inform why we we were so uh, strong, we were such strong believers in rolling out compliance as kind of the baseline. For everything else that we were ultimately going to build. And so compliance is a key part of that. And I would say I would also connect compliance to legal to a certain extent, because, you know, in, in many ways, um, legal and compliance are, you know, I, oftentimes an issue might be packaged as compliance, but it's actually a legal issue and vice versa. And so, you know, we kind of we have, in addition to a compliance organization, we also have a legal organization that that provides support. Uh, so that's the starting point. But then we have, uh, obviously, productivity tools. And you know the core productivity tool for us is the, the virtual data room. And, and the reason why we were so focused on the virtual data room is because the, the virtual data room is the first time uh, in a deal process where, where there's a universal acceptance of the need to go into the cloud to execute a given workflow. And so it was very important for us as a software company to extend that relevance into um, the network effect that plays out when you have buyers, sellers, and their professional advisors diving into the same uh, virtual data room in order to conduct due diligence on, on a given transaction. As a compliance organization, it was also very important for the compliance team to have a backdoor into the data room. Uh, because compliance needs to be given access to the data room. So whether it's a third-party data room or a finalist data room, it's always an expectation that the compliance organization supporting an investment bank is going to have access. And so th- there was a lot of value in, in owning that experience. Mm. Everything we build next uh, is really focused on the marketplace and is focused on uh ensuring that Finalis is doing everything it can to become a revenue center for its bankers. So making it easier for bankers and brokers on the platform to win new mandates and new deal flow. And then once that deal flow is won, to do everything in our power to de-risk that deal, to help our our clients, our bankers and, and brokers get that deal closed. And there's a variety of things that we can deliver with self-serve marketplace tools to unlock that opportunity uh, for our bankers.
2: The marketplace seems like a killer idea. I mean, I'm familiar with AngelList, uh, which is a marketplace for investors to invest in startups. I think the, I had a conversation recently with somebody who's building a a fractional ownership real estate uh, marketplace where people could come in and Buy uh, small fractions of uh, of real estate in different areas, like h- houses and deals. And it seems like there's this explosion, like you were referring to in the retail market, of uh, innovation on on fractional ownership and direct marketplace transactions, catalyzed by recent changes in the regulatory landscape. It, and the marketplace, to me, seems like as you as you decrease the transaction size of, uh, of transactions in business, you know, you're selling a small restaurant. It's so much more efficient. You don't need the relationship. I could see where if, if it's a, you know, hundred million dollar transaction, 200 million dollar transaction, you really, really want to get that right. And so you end up going to a place and paying it a a really high fee for that. But when it's a restaurant you care about, you don't, you don't want to get nickel and dimed. You want it to be simple and it doesn't, and it's, and it's because it's so, you know, how mu- how much different is every restaurant transaction? Like they, they have to be 90% the same. I mean, the, the variables there are much smaller than they would be in a very complex, very large business. So the marketplace seems like an awesome idea. I, I want to ask you though, before we talk about that, because I do want to talk about that. Uh, how did you start the, how did you start building? Like, did you go out and learn to code? Did you have a friend that helped spin this up? Did you use the dev shop? Because the site looks beautiful. Like I was quite surprised at how well designed it is. And, um, you know, seemingly user-friendly the product is. Yeah. How, how, were, there, were there struggles in that? Or was it easy to spin up?
1: What was that like? Uh, so yes, there were <laughs> there were struggles in it. I mean, uh, I'm I'm a lawyer by training, right? So uh, I think, you know, uh, you know, th- there are some you know, some folks have said, well, it's relatively easy for a lawyer to become a coder because so much of it is focused on you know kind of being rules based. But but for me, it was very important from day one to find a technology partner uh, that that I could work with um, in the process of building out components here, um, that, that we thought could be scalable or could effectively become the skeleton, uh, upon which we could build really interesting applications. And so I think an aspect of my stories that I'm originally from Argentina, uh, you probably get that through my name, but not my accent. So my grandparents were Italian immigrants to Argentina. My parents were Argentinian immigrants to the States. Uh, and so I actually, um, Went to Argentina to find a technology partner, and I ended up partnering uh, with uh, the former CTO of uh, Groupon's Latin America platform. And we have built uh, over the years a world class product and engineering organization in uh, Buenos Aires, following in the footsteps of companies like MuleSoft and Off Zero, uh, and it's worked out exceptionally well for us. You know, with this space, we're not replacing an existing software solution. I think that's an important point. We're effectively replacing email, uh, PDF, mm-hmm. and Microsoft Office uh, type solutions. And so we had to start with a blank canvas effectively uh, in terms of, you know, what is this kind of web portal, web hub environment going to look like? Um, and it went, we went through many different iterations of what that needed to be you know originally it was more focused on the virtual data room we realized uh, subsequent to that that we actually had to zoom out and see it as more of a dashboard environment where you're not just managing your deals but you're also managing your regulatory profile and so you know we've gone through multiple cycles uh, as we've started to to land on a, a general framework that that we believe is scalable not just in the US context but globally as well that
2: makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's an awesome partner to have. Ex uh CTO of Groupon for for Latin America. Um cool. That that uh that gives me a, a well-rounded story of the early days. Uh now, do you think going forward that transactions, business transactions, acquisitions or just uh, you know, people trading parts of their business, are we going to move from highly relationship driven to highly marketplace driven, I, I would imagine you would say yes to that. And what's the horizon before I could go onto a site and see uh, you know every every small business that's for sale, kind of like a I don't know if you'd put it in the category of crowdfunding or crowd, or public soliciting, but how, how do you sort of see the landscape of um, public solicitation for small businesses evolving?
1: It's a great question. I think the first thing I would say is that you know I, I am not at all predicting the demise of the investment banker. Um, certainly not. I think there have been multiple failed efforts uh, to achieve that objective. Uh, and what we realized early on is that it's not about trying to agitate or bring about the demise of the banker. It's about delivering enable- en- enablement technologies. Uh, to the investment banker so that you could theoretically have an investment bank of one person. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think about, you know, does the investment bank of the future look like? Well, it could be one person with a finale subscription. Right. Mm-hmm. And what is all the leverage value that a company like finalists can deliver to to that investment banker who is out there monetizing their industry credibility um, and trust earned? after decades of being in a, in a given industry, in a given space, developing relationships. Now, this is very much a relationship business, and that's not something that's going to be automated away. But what, te- what a technology company can deliver is the type of leverage value that that banker might have other- otherwise experienced at a place like Goldman Sachs. We can do that with world-class regulatory affiliation, compliance rails, wrapping that with technology delivering lots of additional leverage through the marketplace being a pipeline uh, for possible deal flow for for that banker uh, to pick up uh, and then connecting that banker with uh, other professional services firms and even other investment banks uh, to partner up on helping to get that deal closed we can also open up a portal to the buy-side community, which is becoming more fragmented and inquisitive by the day, that might be interested in, in checking out a product that happens to be sitting on the shelf uh, through through Finalis that's being brokered by a Finalis-affiliated investment banker or broker. And so I think that that's really the, the opportunity for Finalis as we continue to scale. And one additional point on the marketplace, which I think is important, is that many of the failed efforts to automate away the banker were focused on trying to be that marketplace from day one. And I think that was a critical mistake for, for many of those platforms because there's a negative selection bias associated with trying to build the supply side and the demand side of deals on day one. I think what's exciting about the way that finalis is tackling it is that we're focused on effectively being a world-class solution for the intermediary and it eliminates the negative selection bias associated with the types of deals we'll see on the platform, because by default the deals that we're seeing on the, on the platform are banked transactions or bankable transactions. They have already gone through a quality filter Mm -hmm. uh, with our clients in the, our clients reaching the determination that, yes, I'm I'm going to be spending 10% of my day or or 50% of my day or 100% of my day supporting a given transaction to help get it closed.
2: So how does it work today? So, so f- say I own a restaurant that I've owned for 15 years, uh, say it's got three locations in San Diego and it's doing quite well, but I'm getting old and I want to get out of it. Uh, aside from me, asking my friends and stumbling across a deal do I, how do I do this what would what typically happens in that circumstance?
1: So so you're you own a, a three restaurant chain and you're looking to potentially get it sold. Correct. Well first of all, you need to find an, a broker or an investment banker to help you. And so how are you going to find that person? Google There is no place to go. Yeah. Right. Finalis will become that place to go. Got it. Um, but today there is no place to go. You're calling up your buddies, uh, your, you know, uh, perhaps fellow entrepreneurs, folks that have interacted with bankers before. Maybe you got an MBA and one of your MBA classmates ended up becoming a banker and you you call them up uh, and you ask them. But it's very much a word of mouth process. S-
2: super fragmented.
1: To, to and yeah. incredibly
2: fragmented, and you do, you, and, you do need an investment banker to start. So, say I find someone, then the investment banker has to go and find a buyer. And so, the investment banker, what are they? They obviously do this professionally, so they have some lists of people that they've accumulated that are interested. So, in theory, they're their own or in practice, they're their own marketplace where buyers will come to them and say, hey, what deals do you have that kind of fit this description? And so hopefully this investment banker can
1: match people up together. Is that what's happening? Different investment bankers will have different strategies. Some might approach you and say, or you might approach them and they'll say, well, you know, I'm Mike, I'm a specialist in the restaurant industry, so I know all the all the private equity funds, all the strategics that could be interested in in making this type of an acquisition. Other investment banks are more generalist, uh, and maybe the way that they'll source an investor or an acquirer is through a mass campaign. It it varies widely. Uh, generally speaking. Given the our existing client base and the and the clients that we tend to target, they tend to be industry specialists with deep knowledge and experience in a given industry or sub industry vertical. And so, and one of the ways that they differentiate themselves from the larger shops is that they aren't generalists mm-hmm. and that they have these deep relationships uh, that they can put um, at the service of of helping uh, you Mike with your three uh, restaurant chain. And so that typically tends to be, uh, you know, the types of folks that, that we'll deliver support to.
2: Gotcha. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So there's going to be specificity and the local investment brokers or bankers when it comes to their location. So obviously, if I'm a r- restaurant in Southern California, I'm, the buyer is likely going to be located in the same area. It's not like somebody in Maine or out of the country is going to be a, a serious, frequent purchaser or uh, likely to be. And in many ways, it feels like real estate where there's tools like Zillow and Trulia and Compass that help the real estate agents do the deal. But as far as I know, the vast majority of transactions are still happening with a buy and a sell real estate agent. So you're having someone represent you because it's a big deal. It's a big transaction. So you're willing to pay, even though for some reason the seller pays all the fees, but you're still in theory, you're still paying, uh, what 2%, 3%. So I would imagine it's the same categorical model where you have a big deal, a big part of your life, a house or a business that's being traded or you're, you're buying it on Zillow. You can see a map and you can see all the transactions that are there. And I, I don't know how common it is, but I think they have like a real estate agent option. Um, is that how, how you're kind of imagining it where you, I can go to, uh, uh go to the site and I can see like finalis.com is a map and I can see the different businesses that are available, click on it. I get a description of what the business is, contact them, and then it goes to the investment broker.
1: So, so not, not precisely. <clears throat> and the reason why is because full transparency and openness in this industry can have the effect of cheapening the product,
0: mm. uh,
1: which is not the way that it works in the real estate space. Uh, and so you know what we envision is we are a portal through which corporates, um, so companies looking to connect with bankers will be able to will be able to facilitate that connection. The investment bankers and brokers on the Finales platform will choose. Uh, whether or not this is this is an interesting opportunity and one that they would like to pick up, and then the the investment banker, the broker will get to determine uh, how open they want to be about a given opportunity. Uh, but it's very important that that agency and that control over the identity of the client and, and how public a given opportunity is um, that we give those keys to to the, the trusted investment banker or intermediary to to determine mm-hmm. how open they wish to be about a given opportunity because the scarcity principle does apply mm. uh, very much so in this industry mm. right where you don't necessarily it, there's effectively a, a negative perception oftentimes you know depending on the industry it varies industry by industry as well but depending on the industry there could be a negative perception associated with with a, a given investment opportunity that is being so widely publicized. I would imagine that dynamic would change, though, as the
2: proliferation of uh, transparency grows via online marketplaces. Like there are signals that certainly hurt a seller uh, of a business or real estate. You know, if a house is listed and it's listed for a hundred days, a long time, then it's a negative signal. So the buyer knows, okay, maybe I can negotiate harder. Sure, but I wonder is that is that sort of an inevitable? direction of transparency, because that's true. Like the sell, if the seller hasn't sold in over six months or so, they probably are willing to take a price decrease. And I would imagine the same dynamic is true for a business. Um, yeah. Do you, do you, do you see
1: that? I think I, I think it's one that we're going to have to follow. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, that the, the, the bank, the, the banker's interest is in getting the deal closed. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be very focused on helping the banker de-risk that transaction to get it closed. And if that helping of the banker means, you know, effectively lowering the bar and making it more the transaction or the deal opportunity more visible to other stakeholders, including the buy side, then we're we're going to be helping to communicate that opportunity to to the banker. And we want to obviously assist the banker in in, in helping them to get the de- de- helping them to de-risk the deal to get it closed.
2: Yeah. And so would that mean Finalis is a consumer facing product in addition to like B2C from the broker? So would I would you be SEOing or trying to get on uh, search results if someone's typing in how to sell my local business, find an investment broker where you're the place that's gonna list the investment brokers and the uh, you know, the their ratings or their background, their review, that kind of thing.
1: You can think of our initial go-to-market as very focused on the investment banker, the broker, the placement agent. This next go-to-market that's focused on attracting corporates in is obviously a much broader B2B Mm -hmm. uh, campaign, right, where we're not just appealing to the intermediaries who we can deliver a compliance and regulatory service to, but we're also going to be appealing to corporates to populate their information into the portal uh, so that they can plug in and connect with a high quality uh, investment bank or broker on the other end. That makes sense. Have you thought about fractional um,
2: transactions, fractional investment opportunities? So if I'm a restaurant today, if I were to sell, uh, you know, 5% of my business in exchange for 50,000 or whatever the deal is. Um, I don't know that there is a place that people can go to. And I I would imagine that that part of the restriction has been legal and now it's possible. Do do you see that as are there is there anyone doing that first? And is that something potentially in the roadmap for you guys?
1: I think that there's there's definitely quite a bit of experimentation um, and there's software companies like and platforms like shares Post and others that that are kind of tackling this end of it. Uh, but again, I, I think we see our, the opportunity in driving that digital transformation through bread and butter deal flow, mm. right? which isn't about sales of fractional ownership, although you could consider a capital raise in the lower middle market to be effectively a, a a sale or fractional ownership of a business. And so we're tackling it from that perspective. But clearly, as we continue to grow and scale and we start to identify new uh Adjacencies, as well as kind of uh, new uh, sections of the capital markets that that we want to innovate in, you know, we're going to be taking a close look at that as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting because I could see a business saying, "Hey, maybe I, I'm selling. Maybe I want to continue to run the business, but I want cash on the side. So instead of going out and trying to find one investor or do pitches." There's the crowdfunding model where where this is what I think of when I think of fractional ownership is I can display my business finances and vision like in a pitch deck or video format on a marketplace. People can see that and they can invest, you know, a dollar, $10, $1,000 into the, into the opportunity. All that is aggregated together on some closing date. And then there's this LLC that owns 20% of the business Composing of a thousand different investors, and then the, the software platform manages that the legal for all the investors and the accounting and, and everything else. Right. Seems cool. Yes,
1: I mean <laughs> I think there's going to be a tremendous opportunity there. Uh, it's not where we're focused on now because what we're focused on now is what I would classify as bread and butter deal flow. You know, mergers and acquisitions, private placements, um, you know, equity and debt raises. Uh, and then, as we continue to expand our relevancy, we'll be tackling you know other other elements of the capital markets.
2: But it seems like what you're doing is so huge. I mean, you probably, despite my convincing, uh, you're probably going to be focused on what you're doing for a while. How how big did you say this space was in terms of number of transactions under? Is that how you think of it? Un- number of transactions under X million dollars.
1: I, I I would think of it more as a kind of. Percentage of deal flow that's flowing through the lower middle market is around around forty percent. Okay, and I actually think that's a significant undercount uh, because a lot of that de- a lot of that deal flow is kind of flowing under the radar of many of the data aggregators. And now increasingly, there's fintech businesses uh, that are starting to effectively play broker uh, by virtue of of how they're monetizing. Um, their own marketplace environments. And so, you know, I I don't know the extent to which many of the the statistics around the size of the investment banking industry and its growth are really fully capturing all of the innovation that's happening in the fintech space um, to also take account uh, to, you know, effectively all of these marketplace platforms that that are are earning basis points Mm -hmm. uh, or a management fee and a carried interest on the basis of um, intermediating a transaction between a buyer and a seller in the securities realm.
2: Fair enough. Shifting gears a little bit. Uh, you're, as far as I've been told, you're a teacher, professor. Are you still teaching at? Uh, is it Holt? Is the name of the business school?
1: I don't have time to teach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I, I do have a doctorate, and um, I, I've always loved the opportunity to get. Uh, in front of a classroom, uh, but since I launched the business, really since 2018, uh, I, I haven't had an opportunity to uh, to to keep my classes active. But I still remain affiliated with Holt, uh, and in fact, I met with a group of uh, business school students there uh, just a couple days ago. Um, and so, you know, I like to maintain live links with the university uh, wherever I can, but but you know, 100. 10% of my attention right now is focused on the business. Yeah. What, what were you teaching? I was teaching uh, primarily uh, matters related to law and corporate governance. So business law and corporate governance type issues, mm-hmm. um, which which is a subject matter that, you know, on an intellectual basis, I've I really enjoyed. Mm. Yeah. How, where do
2: you think we are? If you had to maybe in the simplest way, give us a great, give us as in the U S government regulatory bodies overseeing the financial industry as a, as a highest level, 50,000 foot perspective, do you feel like we are competitively regulating, uh, our society and and in the sense of competitive, I mean, we're not too far in the extreme of over-regulation where it's ultra safe, but it's stagnation of innovation. And then the other side, there's just completely unregulation where underregulated, where people get taken advantage of by businesses. Do you feel like we're, we're in a healthy medium evolving in a healthy way or that things
1: are too slow or too fast? I think it's very challenging. I, I, and I think the reason why it's challenging to the regulator, not just in the U S but globally is because there's so much innovation happening in real time. You know, there's, you know, I was alluding earlier to these all of these new fintech marketplace platforms, right? Um, the, the emergence of NFTs and this whole question, is an NFT a security? You know, the, the, the whole regulatory framework is built up around the concept of a security. Uh, and so you have these kind of security-like concepts that are now emerging into, uh, into the scene. And regulation is critically important. Because without regulation, you create the opportunities for fraud and people being taken advantage of, uh, and there have been a number of examples of that, right? Whether you have the GameStop, Robinhood fiasco uh, from a few months ago, uh, you have all you know the the announcement that PayPal uh, had a bunch of fraudulent accounts. Uh, so PayPal, one of the darling fintechs, you know, one of the OGs of the fintech space, um, you know, kind of dealing with this issue. I think it's a consequence of many fintechs prioritizing growth um, at all costs over compliance and regulatory. And and I do think that's a critical mistake. Uh, And so I think that what you're seeing now is an effort on the part of the regulator to ensure that the the regulatory frameworks that we have built up uh, and that we're building on top of are able to account for all of this innovation that we're seeing. Uh, to protect the investor and to make sure that people aren't being taken advantage of. Do you,
2: would you agree with the statement that the goal, uh, the objective of regulation is to, uh, is to minimize, but not to move to absolute zero fraud where people are going to be taken advantage of. And we know that's going to happen as a price for innovation and new technology and new ways of doing business in the world and that the, the goal of regulation is to uh, carefully understand the mechanisms, the repeated mechanisms for fraud and prevent specifically those fraudulent actions from happening without compromising innovation. Does that way of thinking about it resonate with you?
1: Right. It's, it's similar to the the kind of the perennial balance between security and freedom mm-hmm. right um, it's 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 this constant balancing act and you know the regulator in this case the securities regulator much like law, a law enforcement agency uh have to find that balance right how do you maximize opportunities for freedom while also maximizing security mm. because it's that security that enables the freedom as well it's it's a virtuous cycle but right? it's it's not too different yeah from my perspective I agree it's a, it's a fascinating intellectual debate um and it's a fine line that constantly has to be walked uh, by the regulator uh, in order to unlock opportunities for capital flows to you know to create wealth for people I think it's amazing now that it, the accredited investor rules have been loosened that it's easier for retail investors to get involved in the private markets much the same way that they can involved today they can get involved today in the public markets but we need to make sure people don't get taken advantage of did that
2: happen recently for some reason Are, is the pendulum swinging towards more uh individual freedoms for financial decisions internally i mean is that the your sense i know it's hard for you to know but is that the maybe sense you're getting of what's going on, uh, inside these regulatory bodies where they seem to be loosening up the rules across the board. Is that true?
1: You think? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think that it, it's probably rooted in a variety of things. I mean, one thing I'll say is that there's been a pretty steady decline, uh, in the number of public companies, Mm. uh, listed, um, over the last couple of decades. Um, and there's been a lot of opportunities for, Uh, larger institutional investors to get involved in the private markets. And I think, rightly so, Uh, many have been asking the question of why is it so easy for a retail investor to buy a share of a company in a publicly listed company, why can't it be as easy for them to get involved in the private markets? And I think the regulator recognizes that there's some dissonance there uh, and they want to open up opportunities for, for folks to, like institutional grade investors, Get involved in the private markets.
2: There's probably just more pressure now since more money is moving downstream or outside of the public markets, which which makes sense, you know. Yeah. Um, what do you, do you think regulation was a factor or non-factor that should have been a factor in the GameStop, uh, like you call it fiasco, or is that just pure open free market capitalism working in its finest?
1: I mean, (laughs) I think it's a, I actually have an article that's coming out on this Mm. uh, very topic. Um, You know, what happened there was that you had a situation where customers suffered huge losses that that could well have been mitigated if Robinhood had instituted some regulatory guardrails in place, right? Um, You know, the the fact that you have this immediate spike in purchases for for a a stock that had previously been relatively sleepy um, due to chatter happening on platforms like Reddit should have generated some form of a risk flag, right? And at a minimum, folks should have been warned about the inherent risks of of engaging in these types of investments. Uh, And so I think that it's a tell uh, for the need for fintech businesses to you know, institute regulatory and compliance guardrails that are aligned with protecting the investor um, to avoid these types of things from happening. And and do you think it, the goal is to prevent these
2: types of things from happening? Because my understanding of it, tell me where I'm wrong, is that hedge funds uh, short sold these stocks um, so much so that they, they, over short sold them and they realized that they could make a lot of money by doing so. People got together and they talked and said, hey, there's a miscalculation on the financial short selling by these hedge funds. Let's get together and and buy these stock buy these stocks individually on the free market. And as I understand it, Robinhood shut down trading. So I mean that worse than just giving people a, you know, a notification as to you know, some blanket statement as please understand the risks of trading, which I don't know does anything for anyone, but they stopped trading entirely and they caught hell for that. I mean, it was like Twitter fire hard that I remember that day. It was like the only thing you saw on the internet was, was Robin Hood is evil and trying to stop people and, and mixed mixed reviews. I shouldn't say that they were being proclaimed as evil. Um, yeah. Do you think that people shouldn't be allowed to get together like that? Or what's, what's the thing that you think shouldn't happen there?
1: I think that it's, it, to me, it, it feels like with a scenario, like what happened with Robinhood, that, that the the firm was riding a tiger that they couldn't dismount from. Mm-hmm. Um, because the moment that you make it so easy and you effectively gamify the whole process of, engaging in in public market investments that you're going to kind of align yourselves with the whim of the industry and the whim of rogue actors within that industry. And if the focus is, as as I think it should be, in protecting the retail investor and making sure that folks aren't necessarily being taken advantage of, uh, there needs to be a real focus on education. Uh, for the investor for the retail investor, if they are intending to engage in uh, kind of effortlessly easy stock trading that they understand that there's inherent risks uh, at work but here. didn't and so didn't,
2: yeah didn't the individual trader win I mean didn't they come out on top and the hedge funds largely lost after all the dust was settled?
1: I don't know that you could say that the individual investor won I think what it what this whole scenario underscored was the need, to make sure that there are appropriate safeguards in place within many of these stock trading applications so that people understand the risks that they're getting into. I almost feel like it's a mi- like the the miscalculation of risks
2: or the undereducation you could say was on the hedge fund side. The, the, they they provided the pressure by the short sell orders that catalyzed people to recognize this is an investment opportunity. So as I see it, it almost seems like the sophisticated investor was the consumer and they, they explained to people why this is a good investment decision on Reddit. You know, it could be anywhere, but they did it on Reddit. People understood that and they, they got together and and bought the stock. And I almost view that as like the information and education have to be disseminated somehow and where the source of that information is always the question, right? We're arguing that at a global society it's about like, what's truth and where does it come from and how do we audit it? And, uh, and I, and I feel it's ultimately up to the individual to decide. And if the individual is convinced by anybody, frankly, that this is a good argument and it comes from a, a trusted source and I can validate the evidence. And in this case, if somebody on Reddit claims that there's a ton of short sell orders, and I can go and I can look at the short sell orders on Nasdaq, wherever it is, like they're not lying. I mean, I can validate that. And then I'm then I'm thinking to myself as an individual consumer, how could this be a trap? How could this be wrong? And if you go through it enough times and you say, though this sounds right, I think the hedge funds just miscalculated the ability of the free market to aggregate and drum up demand on the stock. It's kind of to me. It's kind of a beautiful thing to to witness uh, because it's so unusual for people to be educated on the stock market and then aggregate their buying power together to provide counter pressure to
1: the hedge funds. So I think it's certainly changing. Well, I, I think there's, yeah, I, I think that um, there's of course, a subset of those users that were educated, but then there was, I think, I would argue a much larger subset of users just following along (laughs) with the latest tweet says. Yes, that's 100% right. right. And so, and I think that that's more the problem, right, is that the gamification uh, of stock trading has led uh, otherwise grossly uninformed retail investors to piggyback off of whatever Hype wave they happen to be seeing. Plus, it came uh, and, and and that and that's a it came right after the stimulus checks came out.
2: So it was like, okay, you got a few extra thousand dollars.
1: It's like <laughs> the money was burning a hole in people's pockets. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Exactly. I got to figure out what to do with this money. Can't put it in the checking account. Oh, hood let's deploy it there. I mean, exactly. you know, maybe people looked at it as like it was a high risk small relative portfolio investment. I. You know, I'm guilty as charged if you're like, okay, I put a few hundred bucks or something just to, it's the excitement on some level, which I think is the gamification, which can have a negative spin if you get addicted to it and it becomes self-destructive. But it is fascinating to, to think about. Uh, I'm really slow to label it as good or bad and just look at the mechanics for what they were and try to observe sure. about human behavior and psychology. Um, but I would look forward to reading your article. So if you send that over, I'll include it in the show notes.
1: No, I'm happy to.
2: Awesome. Federico, I'll let you run, man. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you, uh, learn about your business. I love what you guys have accomplished so far, and the marketplace concepts seem super exciting. So I look forward to your progress. Congrats on everything. Are there anything you wanted to share? Are you writing publicly? I'm sure the website is easy for people to find. Anything else you'd want to throw out there?
1: I, I would just say to, to check us out uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, or through our website at finalis.com. That's F-I-N-A-L-I-S.com. Uh, and it'll be through LinkedIn primarily that that you'll be able to, uh, to kind of keep abreast of the latest developments at the firm. Uh, we're growing very, very quickly uh, and signing up groups on a daily basis onto the Finalis platform. And the product that we're really excited to roll out over the next several days is version 1.0 of the mandate marketplace, um, which is the marketplace that I was alluding to earlier, which is version 1.0 is really a place where investment bankers, placement agents, independent brokers will be able to solicit and opt into collaboration opportunities that are sourced internally from within the finalis network. And as I mentioned, we, we have about 120 um, brokerage groups that are on the finalis platform today. With a with over five hundred active mandates in market. So in twenty months we've already scaled to effectively become a large investment bank. Uh, and so lots of potential energy there to mine in the way of uh, potential collaborations.
2: One last thing I want to ask you, I, I should have asked you sooner. you guys raised, have you raised capital so far? are you are you funded investment funded? Planning
1: to, or yeah, we we have actually a, a pretty lean funding history. Uh, you know, we we've raised uh, we've raised in uh, prior seed uh, and seed two rounds, um, but you know the business. This is a business that makes money, uh, and so you know it's it's limited our need historically to to have to raise too much capital. But as we look into this next chapter ahead, we're evaluating opportunities to uh, raise a meaningful amount of money uh, over the course of the next year or so. And the question in our mind is when do we want to pull the trigger? Mm. Well, it sounds like
2: you're in an exciting spot. Best of luck with everything, man. Thanks for coming on today. Thank
1: you so much. Take care.
2: Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you.
0: Have you ever felt that your life has no meaning? Do you wake up in the morning dreading the day ahead? Do you feel lost? I'm Tanner Campbell, host of the podcast Practical Stoicism. Every Saturday morning, I explore the ancient texts of Stoicism and derive from them practical takeaways that anyone can implement to live a more contented and fulfilling life. Search your podcast listening app of choice for practical stoicism and join me each week to explore stoicism practically and discover how it can help you live better.